Good morning and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. It is a pleasure to be able to broadcast God's word to you and thanks for tuning in. Look forward to the time we'll, when we'll be able to meet in person and can uh, give you a hug and shake your hand and um, just enjoy fellowship in person. But you know, uh, God remains good and we can rejoice in the day he has made and let us be glad and rejoice in it. I know that he will bring us through every trial of our lives. He has brought us through faithfully and we can trust he will do so no matter what state we're in, that he, he has created us. He has given us a new day and let's rejoice in him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the day you have made, that you have ordered all our days by your grace, that you have given us a life and a life to live abundantly because of what Jesus has done. Thank you for sending him to be our Savior. Thank you for your faithfulness through the ages. And we know you will be faithful now and forever. And so I pray, Lord, you would increase our faith. You would fill us with great joy, fill us with your spirit. Give us understanding of your word today. And we thank you that even in this book of Job, where Job suffered terribly, yet he, through this passage, we can receive great comfort from you. You are able to redeem the greatest sorrows for the greatest joys, and it's faith in you that enables us to believe that and to receive your truth. And I pray that we would learn to do that. We'd learn to trust you more. Please enlighten us through your word and give us ears to hear and hearts to understand, and may our lives obey you with joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Passages in Job chapter 3. Life does have a way of overwhelming us. It, even a minor inconvenience can lead us to uh, be frustrated. It can take off the shine of the blessings we've received from God and His goodness. And I was thinking as I was reading through the book of Esther this week, which I love, I was struck by what Haman said after he had joyfully returned home from a private banquet with the king and queen. Like he was very he was special position. He's the only one there. And it said that his heart was glad. He talked about the, the privilege of access and the favor of royalty that he had. His wealth, his power, his, his status, his kids, how he'd been promoted. And so his heart is filled with all this gladness over his, how great life is. And as he's going home, he passes by Mordecai the Jew, who did not move or rise before him. He didn't bow before him. And it says he was filled with indignation. So Haman gathers his whole family around and he's, he's trotting out his accomplishments, how great he is and how wonderful his life is. But this is his conclusion in Esther 5.13. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He had all these blessings, Haman, but... Pride, greed, and envy did not allow him to rejoice when only one person didn't give him the honor he thought himself worthy of. He coveted that honor because one person didn't do what he wanted. All the good things, they just faded into obscurity. And what a different heart we see in Job, however. After he lost everything, he blessed God in the midst of grief. God allowed Job to lose wealth children, his health. He was in anguish physically, mentally, spiritually. 
an emotional wreck. He's covered in boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. He's scraping his boils with a piece of pottery because God had delivered him into Satan's hand, just said, spare his life. And Satan showed him no pity. He has three friends, Job, um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They heard of his terrible trial. They arranged a time to meet with him to comfort him. And the book says that for seven days, they sat in silence with him. They saw his grief was great. They didn't want to offend him. And the, the remainder of the book, the vast majority of it, is their conversation. And we must understand that it's an emotional time. The context of it, it's, it's put in poetic form. And so they're expressing their feelings in an exaggerated manner. And we know that when people are in the heat of the moment, we extend grace to them. Like, well, okay, that they're going a bit far with that. or they're, they're, That's how they're feeling. I'm not going to discount the way they're feeling. It may not be completely theologically accurate with the whole of Scripture, but it's a mix of feeling and there is some truth in there. And one rule of basic biblical exposition is the New Testament takes precedent over the Old. Job and his friends, they didn't have the developed doctrines of the gospel and and the afterlife that we have since Christ has come, since he has become wisdom for us. This in no way renders the Old Testament invalid, but we ought to acknowledge that there were answers in the law, the Psalms and the prophets and in the New Testament to questions Job had um, that he could not have known at that time. At the same time, Job is still the word of God. It has the power to illuminate our hearts and teach us many things. So let's jump in in Job chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said, May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, A male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. May the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it. May it not rejoice among the days of the year. May it not come into the number of the months. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day and those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not see the dawning of the day, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. Satan claimed that when Job was afflicted uh, by having his goods and possessions taken away, and when his health was afflicted, that he would curse God to his face, but Job never did that. He cursed the day of his birth. He's a human being like us. He was overwhelmed with the circumstances of his life and grief. He had emotions and feelings and his grief was so great. And he was not able to reminisce about the good times of the past. He wasn't able to comfort himself with how good things were because of how bad things were then. It was like the memories of former days. He just wished he had never been born. That was how great his sorrow was. He said, I wish my birthday was stricken from the calendar. Like that day did not exist so that I wouldn't have to endure such things. Now notice he doesn't say, I wish I didn't have these boils or I wish that wind hadn't collapsed the house on all my children. Or I wish my oxen and donkeys had been in another field when the Sabaeans came and raided them. He's not regretting his decisions at all. 
he, he really regrets that he exists. He's regretting that God made him. And if he had been not been born, he would have been spared the heartache of having wealth, having a family, having these blessings from God, and then not having them. Losing it all. As at his birth, people rejoiced that a son had been born, but he saw the day of his birth as a curse rather than a blessing. And he says, I wish my mother was barren. I wish I was never here. He said, may those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. To stir up Leviathan, a powerful sea creature described in Job 41 and in other passages, it would be most regrettable. It says later in Job 41.8, lay your hand on him, remember the battle, never do it again. Job looks back upon his birth like this, he, with regret. It was a day to avoid, like when you start up Leviathan and say, hey, don't do that, it's not worth it. It's a dangerous venture to stir him up. And uh, so this regret, it's grief, sorrow, pain of mind. We often regret our actions because we imagine if we had done something differently, the outcome would be improved, right? Like we feel sometimes when we're filled with regret, we're looking back and we're saying, if I had only done something different, I could have a better result. Job didn't regret his actions. He regretted that God had caused him to be born. And regret, does it offer any hope for those who drown in it? What can we do to change the past? None of us can turn back time. None of us can undo what's happened. Regret, it has the potential power to rob us of any hope of the soul that rests in the goodness of God. Like we have hope in God, but regret can rob us of that. The one who says, I wish I had never been born because life is so hard can say by faith in Christ, I am glad to be born again because it means the best days for me still lie ahead. And that is true. We can know that absolutely. Whether your days are great now or difficult now, we know the best lies ahead for us because we have eternity to spend with God in his presence forever. It takes time for our minds and our hearts to digest sorrow and grief. We eat our food and our bodies, uh, God created it in such a way that it draws nutrition from that food and eliminates the waste. It absorbs that nutrient and those nutrients go to every cell in our bodies, which is phenomenal. It's amazing to, under, to comprehend. But uh, grief, it's not processed that way. It's not processed in our stomachs without us knowing exactly what's happened it's going through our mind when we don't know why things have happened. And it takes a lot more time to process grief to, uh, than food, right? My food is digested within a day, but grief, it can last for a long time. Where we're sorting out how we're feeling and um, these feelings that Job is feeling so intensely. And our faith in God and his word, it's so instrumental to filter our grief, to filter out grief's damaging effects and convert it to something spiritually nourishing as we receive comfort by drawing near to God. Because grief can be redeemed in this way that it causes us when we are overwhelmed to seek him and to trust him more, to renew our faith. Job continues in chapter three, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I have lain still and I would have lain still and been quiet. 
I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. Job transitions from cursing the day of his birth to repeatedly asking why he suffered such things. God knew what would befall him. Why was he permitted to be born and nourished and raised only to suffer so terribly? And he couldn't see any profitable purpose or reason in his suffering. Like, why would God create a person to destroy him like he was? In his anguish, never being born seemed a much better option than facing this trial, for at least it served the purpose of preventing pain. That, that made sense to Job in his suffering. And trials far less than Job's have led many people to the same conclusion. Better not to have been born than to face such troubling times. And Jesus put a spin on this when he spoke of Judas who would betray him in view of future judgment. So it's not like, oh, the suffering's so bad now that I wish I had never been born. But listen to what he says in Matthew 26, 24. The son of man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. It would have been good for the one who betrayed the son of God not to have been born because of the future punishment he would be facing in hell. Jesus came to suffer. That's why Jesus came. Can you imagine Jesus facing the cross and saying, I wish I had never been born to come to this place. Well, that was the purpose for him coming to redeem, to give life to those who do suffer, to give a future and a hope of glory with him in heaven through faith in Jesus. So God, he's able to redeem even crucifixion for good. Matthew Pooley makes a good observation. He says, Job meddles here, not with their eternal state after death or the sentence and judgment of God against wicked men, of which he speaks hereafter, but only speaks of their freedom from worldly troubles, which is the only matter of his complaint and present discourse. Job speaking from a human vantage point right here, how the deceased are free from what afflicted them on earth. The wicked, they cease from troubling anybody else. The weary, they're finally at rest and still. Prisoners no longer hear the voice of their oppressor and servants are finally free of their master's control. So the things that were affecting them on earth are now over. And there was a sense of comfort Job received in that thought. Now in the New Testament, doctrines concerning death, judgment, and the afterlife are much more fully developed. We see uh, the believer who dies is often spoke of as sleep. And the soul does not sleep. We know that when we are absent from this body, we are present with the Lord. We're very much alive. When the body is deceased and it goes the way of the earth, there's the cease of action and and speaking, but the soul, we know, is alive. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Those who perish in their sins, 
they will not rest in peace. Their bodies are resting because it's a cessation of activity, but their souls will face eternal punishment, we read. The second death, the lake of fire, that place of outer darkness where worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. What's called the good life here on earth, it cannot be compared with the goodness of eternal life that God gives to those who trust in him. So uh, that is a glorious day to be in the presence of the Lord and something that we should be pleased to embrace and look forward to that day. Job 3.20, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul who long for death, but it does not come and search for it more than hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in for my sighing comes before I eat and my groanings pour out like water for the thing I greatly feared has come upon me. And what I dreaded has happened to me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, for trouble comes. Job continued to question why God had allowed such evil to befall anyone. He couldn't make sense of it. He couldn't make sense of his circumstances. He had been born and given a life that he no longer wanted. He felt miserable. He was bitter. He longed for death. Death seemed a more pleasant prospect than the sun rising on a new day. For the seventh time, Job asks, why? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? Job saw God as the cause of his suffering. He, knows, he knew that God was all-powerful, righteous, and just, and he felt imprisoned in sorrow, unable to communicate with God as he once did, or find relief in death. He was trapped in a life he didn't want anymore. And I wonder, have you ever felt like that? Can you identify with this grief and sorrow? He caught himself groaning and sighing. Just he couldn't convey the way he felt with words. And it was just the grief was kind of ebbing out of him. And there were no words for it. He, and he says what he feared and dreaded had come upon him. And this is a startling ad admission because previously this means in times of unprecedented prosperity, he realized one day, he said, what if I lose this? What if I lose this fellowship with God? What if God doesn't answer my prayers? What if my whole family is taken from me? Despite having faith in God, Job, he says he's not at ease. He's not quiet and he had no rest because trouble comes. Because of how he felt, it seemed like the future could only bring more trouble. It's not going to be a good future. I, I have no hope of even a better day. It's, it's bad now and only trouble is coming. McGee wrote this in Through the Bible. His tranquility, even in the days of prosperity, was disturbed by the uncertainty of life. Our problem is that we grab for our security blanket instead of grabbing for the Savior. We need to rest upon the word of God. Many people think they will find rest and quiet and prosperity in a career, financial prosperity or home ownership or a large family or restored health. When Job had this and much more, he still had fear and dread of losing them. Others, they put their blame on, I have too much stuff. I'm too busy. Well, after Job lost everything, he still wasn't carefree. 
He was still weighed down with many cares and sufferings, but he had nothing. All he had was the ruins of a life that he once loved. And he's saying, I wish I wasn't even born to have to go through this. What Job lacked, God was able to supply. Our rest is found in Christ Jesus by faith in him. And so chapter four begins a cycle of Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. They speak in turn to Job, answering each one. And they all hold basically the same theological view. All suffering is punishment for sin. Job suffered and thus he was a sinner. So he needed to repent. And their views are contradicted by God in this book and also throughout the Bible. Now what they're saying is not necessarily untrue, but it was an, it was a untrue statement concerning Job because God had said of Job, he's a righteous man. He's upright. He fears me. He, He doesn't follow evil, but they thought because he's suffering, he must be in sin, but God was not afflicting him for a particular sin. He was afflicting him because of his righteousness. God knew what he had in Job and he knew he would uh, withstand the test and be blessed in the end. So in the first speeches, the friends, they cautiously start uh, suggesting their point. They introduce it gently. The next speech, they insinuate that Job was to blame. And finally, at the end, they're just straightforward accusing him. Like, get right, man. And they're coming down pretty hard on him. And so we begin with Eliphaz here in Job chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, If one attempts a word with you, will you become weary? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Surely you have instructed many, and you have strengthened weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now it comes upon you, and you are weary. It touches you, and you are troubled. Is not your reverence your confidence, and the integrity of your ways your hope? For seven days, Job and his friends were silent. Job finally spoke. Then Eliphaz gets the courage to gently begin his discourse. And he didn't want to offend him. He, he begins acknowledging that Job had been just a, a pillar of help for other people, that he uh, was wise. He was selfless. He had previously listened to complaints of people. He upheld those who stumbled. He strengthened the feeble. But now he was the one suffering. Now he was the one overwhelmed. And He found it hard. Eliphaz suggests that it was easier for Job to help others and to give to them rather than to listen to advice or receive help himself. And he says, is not your reverence, your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? And he's saying, I wonder your faith in God. Is that a front? These good deeds that you're doing, is that just superficial? Your actions are your confidence rather than God. Perhaps self-confidence is behind this great fall. You were confident in yourself and not in God. He continues in verse 7. Remember now, who ever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever cut off? Even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his anger they are consumed. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Eliphaz reminds Job that all who perished deserved it for their sin. And we see this is true, that the soul who sins will surely die. 
and the upright, conversely, were blessed. We find this principle in scriptures like Psalm 55, starting in verse 22, which reads, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. While this principle is true, it is not a promise. There are people who do wickedly and live long on the earth. And they are prosperous. At the same time, Jesus, he's the most upright man who ever lived, right? Blameless under the law and altogether righteous before God, the Holy One, the King of Kings. At 33 years old, he was murdered. He was crucified. To assume that Job's suffering was a direct result for his sin, it was a dangerous assumption. Eliphaz did not consider how a man can reap what he did not sow, right? Yes, you reap what you sow. That's a true principle. But sometimes there are things that grow up that you did not plant. That happens to me all the time if I plant anything. It's because the soil already had some seeds in it that I had nothing to do with. I remember once someone said, oh, do you want some dirt? And I I learned to say, is it clean dirt? Well, it's always clean when someone wants to get rid of it, right? Well, anyway... They gave me this dirt, and I've never had dirt so full of weeds that I just imported into my yard. And I didn't plant a thing, but there were, there were weeds in that dirt. Um, there was a parable Jesus told about a landowner who sowed good seed, and overnight an enemy came and sabotaged it by sowing tares among the good wheat. And so it wasn't the fault of the master that there was bad seed or those tares in his field. An enemy did that, and that was what happened with Job. He had done righteously, but an enemy came and buffeted him. Eliphaz didn't see that. And he, he's beginning to accuse Job that like, well, if you're struggling, you must have done something wrong. And this can be a thought that creeps into our heads when we struggle or someone else is struggling. David wrote this in Psalm 7, verse 14 through 16. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity. Yes, he conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He made a pit and dug it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His trouble shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down on his own crown. In the book of Esther, we see a great illustration of this, where Haman, he builds gallows to hang Mordecai out of pride, and the book details how Mordecai was promoted, and Haman was hung on those same gallows. And this plays out in the sight of people on earth, Ultimately, God will see it done in the eternal state. There can be people who seem to prosper on the earth and they seem to evade justice. But in time, their foot will slide. God will see to it that we do reap what we sow. And even if we don't see it, he will see it done. But just because someone is struggling or having a hard time in grief and sorrow and loss does not mean that it is directly tied to something they have done wrong. We have to, in our theology, leave a lot of room for God's grace, his mercy, and forgiveness. We have to. If we start becoming very rigid with this, we we miss out on the truth of God's favor that he gives us that we never deserved, ever. Eliphaz, he shows even lions, the king of beasts, they must submit to their age and mortality before God who created them. He's like, you know, that old 
uh, male that's roaring over his pride, he can be overthrown by a young upstart. That lion that used to chase down its prey can fall prey to starvation and hunger and weakness. I like what uh, Pastor David Guzik said in the Enduring Word Commentary. He says, many people today believe the counsel of Eliphaz and believe it as an absolute spiritual law instead of a general principle. It is true that the principle of Galatians 6-7 has application beyond giving and supporting teachers and ministers. It has a general application in life. What we get out is often what we put in. Yet Paul did not promote some law of spiritual karma that ensures we will get good when we do good or always get bad when we do bad things. If there was such an absolute spiritual law, it would surely damn us all. And that is so true because we all deserve punishment, and death for our sins. The ones who assume that every painful trial is a result of their sin, it's likely they often attribute, um, they will credit themselves for the blessings they receive from God, right? They'll attribute that to themselves. They'll say, because I've done this, because I've given that, this is the blessing I get to receive. So they're crediting themselves for the good things they receive rather than God who gave it to them all of grace. If God was not gracious, if he was not merciful or kind, we would have no hope in this world or in the age to come. Since Eliphaz believed Job deserved the trouble that he was facing, he lacked compassion and mercy for his friend. And may we not fall into this trap. May we be on guard against this. Job 4 verse 12. Now a word was secretly brought to me, and my ear received a whisper of it. In disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, if he charges his angels with error, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. They are broken in pieces from morning till evening. They perish forever with no one regarding. Does not their own excellence go away? They die even without wisdom." Eliphaz used an example of lions to prove his point, that even the strong grow weak and feeble. Then he has this spiritual experience that he shares with Job through a dream or a vision. And it seems when some people are convinced that their dream comes from God, there's nothing that can convince them otherwise, even the revelation of scripture. But Jeremiah 23, 28 says this, the prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. God has spoken and can speak through dreams and visions or any way he likes. But that doesn't mean that all dreams are worth repeating or that every one of them has some gem of spiritual truth for us to mine from. Those who already have God's word, we have the wheat. And we shouldn't be feeding on chaff, sorting through it uh, when we already have the truth of God's word. Eliphaz, he says he had these disquieting thoughts. He's afraid, he's trembling. The spirit in the darkness is standing before him, this apparition. His hair stands up on end as he hears a voice speaking to him. 
And based upon what the spirit says, I really recognize the duplicity and the deceit of Satan in the tone of these words that cast doubt on the goodness and grace and justice of God. The main point that the spirit makes is that man cannot be righteous or pure like God. True. If a man, if God finds error in spiritual heavenly ministers like angels who are immortal, how much more does sin exist in mankind who is made from the dust of the ground, easily crushed as a moth? This really just tells us what we already know, but it leaves out some really important detail. A mortal man cannot be more righteous than God. No one ever suggested that was the case. But God is gracious and good. We have learned to impute his righteousness to those who trust in him, that he has become wisdom for us through Jesus Christ by faith. God doesn't merely charge his angels with error. Some are guilty and under condemnation for their sin. That is, it's been confirmed to be true. It's not just an accusation, God accusing some angel. No, he, has, he is holding some in chains of everlasting darkness for that day of judgment. They will be condemned for their crimes. And our excellence is nothing. Yes, but the excellence of Jesus is eternal. And he gives us eternal glory with him forever. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, some nights you do toss and turn. It could be the aching bones or your mind is going or sometimes you're just having these repetitive thoughts and you can't quite break out of the cycle. Or sometimes you believe that you've just discovered the mysteries of the universe and they wake up the next morning and go, what was I thinking? That didn't make sense at all. Or you could be so uneasy so almost worried about something like disquieting thoughts. Like we've had those, right? Where you're like, what if this happens or that? And your mind can just be racing. How good it is when you are disquieted, when you are not, re not at rest to go back to the word and consider what God has said rather than reading into a dream or a vision of the night. When you were disquieted, when you were afraid, when your hair was standing up on end. Job didn't need to be troubled by this report. Life is full of experiences, good and bad. Our pain can be fleeting. It could be severe for a long season. But as children of God, we're to run to him for wisdom, for guidance, for strength. We dream and wonder if it's spiritually significant. Like, does this mean anything? What does that uh, symbolize? And we begin to spiritualize it. But we can always be confident in the revelation from God's word. Please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. 2 Peter 1, verse 16. Peter writes, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy spirit. Job was faced with a choice as he scraped himself with a potsherd. 
Would he allow a voice speaking out of darkness to fill him with fear and dread? Or would he hold fast to the God that he knew by faith? Jesus Christ is real. Peter affirmed that. Many others were eyewitnesses of his majesty, as we read here in 2 Peter chapter 1. When Peter went up with Jesus to the Mount of Transfiguration, it says that Jesus was changed before him and his, he was so glorious, he was shining like the sun and its strength, though it was in night. And that prophetic word was confirmed. And so he says, we do well to heed this like light in the darkness. What God said came to pass. We should hold on to that and not give place to shadowy forms and disquieting thoughts and the grief and the sorrow that would drown us and fill us with regret and despair. Instead, be learning to look to Jesus in that. And when you see other people suffering, be compassionate and kind toward them rather than assuming they are to blame and deserve what they're going through. Because when life is good, we don't deserve that. We are sinners. God is a savior. Early Friday morning, I went on a walk and I was just blown away by a beautiful sunrise. Not all sunrises are as beautiful as that day. And it was like a quarter of the sky was just filled with the glory of God and his brush strokes in the clouds. And man, it's like every time I would circle back and I would catch a glimpse of that. Sorry, I was like, whoa, it's doing something different. Like it's getting bigger. It's expanding. And it was like, like the brightest opal you can see, except huge. I mean, just filling it and changing. And it was gorgeous. And uh, it's one of those situations that I'm sure you had. You have a camera and you're trying to get the picture that just translates how you're feeling and what you're observing. And it's just, I don't care how many megapixels you have or how large your panorama is. It cannot convey what you're seeing and what you're feeling. And it struck me how the manifestations of God's glory, whether it's in a sunrise, sunset, a rainbow, you know, that flash of lightning where you're like, did you see that? Even on video, it just can't translate how glorious it was that the boom of thunder and how that made you feel when you were outside. All of these manifestations of God's glory, they are fleeting. They do not last very long. You simply have to be there to enjoy them in person. Like a canvas, a, a video, a description, they all pale in comparison to the real thing. And we're just seeing a glimpse of really the awesome majesty of who God is and what he does. The God who created the universe and sustains it. The same one who looked upon Job with mercy and compassion. He's always there behind the scenes. We don't always have a, a clear glimpse, glimpse of him. And the pain, it can distract us. It can bring us down. It's like God allows his glory to shine through for a few minutes, brief moments through a sunrise, through a scripture. So we'll learn to trust him in the night season because the night season can be long. Right? That sunrise, it was minutes. A night can be long. Those disquieting thoughts, they can keep pressing into us. Like when Job wished he had never been born and he wondered, why have I been made to suffer like this? You remember what Peter did after the Jesus was transfigured before him? He suggested they build tabernacles to, to stay like, oh man, this is awesome. This is where we should stay. But the transfiguration was fleeting. It was short. Within minutes, darkness was on the mount. Jesus looked like he did before. 
but was he any less majestic? Was he any less glorious? No. And he was just as glorious when they went down the mountain and he's driving out demons. He's teaching the people. He's in total control of the situation. Still the same awesome God that they caught a glimpse of a bit of the real thing when they were on that mount. And Jesus is still awesome, even more in his glorious state. The glory and power of Jesus was real. Whether he's on the mountain and shining like the sun in its glory or down in the valley dealing with demons and unbelieving people. The darkest, coldest night is broken by the glorious light of the sun. The light of the world, Jesus, he has dawned. He has caused us to rise by faith in him. So brothers and sisters, let's rejoice in him. Let's celebrate the majesty of our savior who is wisdom for us. We are not holy before God in ourselves. No man is righteous, but his righteousness is ours through faith in him. And maybe that wasn't, wouldn't be comforting words to Job in that moment, but it's certainly comforting to me to know that God is with us. He will never leave or forsake us. And the best days still lay ahead. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word and for the encouragement we find even in this book. I imagine some would recoil at the idea of going through Job verse by verse because we don't want to be depressed for months or for sermon after sermon to be languishing along with Job. But Lord, you don't keep us there. You bring us out. Thank you for causing us to lift our heads, to know that our redemption draws nigh, that the best days lay ahead. Whether we, have, whether we are living what we think to be the good life now in fellowship with you or with the, the goods of this world, Lord, all these things will fade away in the excellence of your majesty. I thank you that you give us these opportunities to calibrate our hearts and to refocus our eyes and to renew our faith in you so that we would trust you, so that we would um, draw near to you. Lord, for those who are asking, why am I suffering like this? And, and how, why, should, why should I live to see such days and really filled with regret? Lord, I pray that you would minister these words to their hearts. That in the rising of the sun, even the setting of the sun, even in the darkness and disquieting night, Lord, you would be our comfort. You would be our rest. And you are. I pray we would seek refuge in you. Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your power. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the gospel and what Jesus has accomplished. And we praise you and look forward to all that you will teach us this week. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.